Blog Talk Radio.
And welcome back uh, to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Sunday, August the 22nd, uh, 2021. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Uh, We want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. Once again, to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide radio broadcast. And uh, later on, we'll be coming up uh, with our Pan-African Newswire report, and we'll have uh, dispatches on the appreciation expressed uh, by the Palestinian Authority to the Southern African Development Community, SADAC, for its resolution rejecting the African Union Commission Chair's recognition of Israel as an observer state to the continental organization. Ethiopian scholars have rejected the demands being made by the United States ambassador to the United Nations related to negotiations with the TPLF. Approximately 7.5 million people have been infected with the COVID-19 virus across the African Union region. And the Republic of Sudan and the Republic of South Sudan have announced the reopening of their borders after many years. 
In the second and third hours, we continue our focus on Black August uh, with segments on some of the leading figures in the African-American struggle. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. We'll take a musical interlude. We'll be back with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week.
Na kerava na 
scholars have expressed objection uh, to U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield's statement for negotiations between the Ethiopian government and the terrorist uh, Twitter message, uh, Ben Silly, School of International Affairs Director and International Security, Professor Ann Fitzgerald, said caution uh, must be uh, to avoid further attempts of U.S. Uh, direct talks uh, with no state armed group or aid blackmail. Lessons from elsewhere uh, must be learned. Uh, this is time for African solidarity across the continent to avoid another global region being upturned. Hinagao Mahari, a clinical professor of neurology, founder and president of the Peoples of People on his part, said that the terrorist TPLF was overthrown by the Ethiopian people, what is driving the desperate U.S. West attempt to restore their power. If it was not for the prime minister, they would have been languishing in prison. Why do these rebels deserve the West's uh, support? Instead of working with the government of a sovereign country, the West has chosen to stand with terrorists and their enterprise, which was overthrown by a popular revolt in 2018. The only objective is to get back to power. Ethiopians are united, and uh, U.S. aid must pressure the TPLF rather than defending them. Sharing the above, uh, Simo Parveran, an uh, international affairs expert, said uh, there is an American initiative taking place which sounds dangerous. He added the Ethiopian-led initiative sounds more balanced if proper ownership of the federal government is generally respected. Time for African solidarity with Ethiopia is now to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe, and in the uh, fight against uh, COVID-19 on the African continent, According to an article that was uh, printed in allafrica.com, it says, as of August the 22nd, today, confirmed cases of COVID-19 from 55 African countries reached 7,481,530, while over 59,172,030 vaccinations have been administered across the continent. Reported deaths in Africa reached 188,517, and 6,605,601 people have recovered. South Africa has the most reported cases with 2,680,225 people, and uh, 79,251 people have died just in the Republic of South Africa. Other most affected countries are Morocco, which has 806,000, Tunisia, which has 638,000. Ethiopia has 295,000. Libya has 293,000. Egypt has 286,000. And Kenya has 228,000. For the latest total, see the All Africa Interactive Map on their website at allafrica.com with uh, per-country numbers. Uh, The numbers are compiled by the Centers for System Science and Engineering, at John Hopkins University, uh, using statistics uh, from the World Health Organization and other international institutions as well as national and uh, departments. And uh, finally, uh, the Republic of Sudan and the Republic of South Sudan uh, have agreed to reopen their borders. Uh, Sudan and South Sudan have agreed to open their borders 
After many years, uh, this was announced after a meeting uh, between South Sudan President Salvador Kiir and Sudan's uh, interim Prime Minister Abdallah Hamdak, according to President Kiir's office. According to a press statement seen by Nation Africa at the weekend, the diplomatic meeting convened in Juba also resolved the reopening of water transport. The two parties engaged in extensive talks and candid discussion on all aspects and fields of cooperation. The opening of four border crossing posts, uh, Jebeline Rank, Miriam, uh, Braham, Tumsa, and Karsana Panaquet. The official launch uh, will take place on October the 1st uh, by uh, the two parties, reads the joint statement. Now, during Omar Bashir's government, South Sudan and Sudan closed much of the 2000 borders in 2011, uh, hitting traders and communities on both sides of the disputed line. Borders uh, were closed in 2011 uh, when relations deteriorated after uh, the South succeeded following a long civil war, uh, taking with it three quarters of the country's soil. However, in January of 2016, President Omar Hassan al-Bashir of Sudan ordered the opening of his country's borders with South Sudan, but this uh, did not uh, last. And uh, with that, uh, we're going to uh, conclude the Pan-African Newswire segment. In concluding uh, this segment of the Pan-African Journal, we'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since then it has published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches in various newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. And if you'd like to log on uh, to uh, the Pan-African Newswire, all you have to do is go to our website, and uh, that is at uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access to today's uh, Pan-African Journal, uh, this special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, August 22nd, uh, 2021, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. Programs can be shared with other potential listeners via email, blogs and websites, and through social media networks. This is Abayomi Azikawe. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program.
Welcome back, and uh, that was uh, Detroit's own The Supremes, the Motown Sound, uh, Tune and Title Reflections of 1967. And, uh, of course, uh, we're going to right now move into our Black August segment, and uh, we're going to pick up uh, what we left off in the previous program, um, the uh, anniversary of the assassination of George Jackson. Uh, it's 50 years. As of yesterday, uh, August 21st, and uh, of course, uh, we're going to uh, right now move uh, into uh, this segment on George Jackson. This week on Making Contact. All prisons, you stare. Oh, it's no other way to hold an individual. Oh, well, let's say, let's put it this way. There's no way for a small knot of armed men to hold a huge crowd of armed men. There's no other way. Besides terror, fear, you know, uh, threats, uh, terrorism, brutality. The whole thing is, is based on, uh, on fear. On this edition of Making Contact, we present The Struggle Inside, The Murder of George Jackson, a program about the modern anti-prison movement. This year marks the 30th anniversary of Black August, first originated in the California prisons to honor fallen freedom fighters George and Jonathan Jackson, Katari Golden, James McLean, and William Christmas. Jonathan was gunned down outside the Marin County Courthouse on August 7, 1970, as he attempted to take hostages in a plan to negotiate the release of his brother George. This action liberated three imprisoned black liberation fighters, James McLean, William Christmas, and Rochelle McGee. Rochelle McGee is still imprisoned and is the sole survivor of the Marin County Rebellion. I'm Nita Johnson, your host this week on Making Contact, a program about connecting people vital ideas, and important information. Now let's listen to The Struggle Inside, The Murder of George Jackson. 
Saturday, August 21st, 1971. Today at about 3 p.m., there was an attempted break from our adjustment center, which is our maximum security facility. George Jackson was killed as he broke and ran outside the adjustment center. Well, I could die tomorrow, but uh, there'll be a two or three hundred people to take my place. This is one black man they're not going to murder and sweep under the rug, unless they murder me too. Today we present The Struggle Inside, The Murder of George Jackson, a program about the origins of the modern anti-prison movement. My name is Jonathan Jackson, Jr. In 1960, at the age of 18, George Jackson was accused of stealing $70 from a gas station near Los Angeles. Though there was evidence of his innocence, his court-appointed lawyer maintained that because Jackson had a record, two instances of petty crime, he should plead guilty in exchange for a light sentence in the county jail. He did, and instead received an indeterminate sentence of one year to life. Jackson spent the next ten years in prison, seven and a half of them in solitary confinement. Instead of succumbing to the dehumanization of prison existence, he transformed himself into the leading theoretician of the prison movement and a brilliant writer. On January 16, 1969, a few days after a prison guard shot and killed three black Soledad inmates, another guard was found beaten to death. Soledad was a real intense place. David Johnson, prison activist and former prisoner. There had been a lot of killings in the hole. Most of the killings had taken place. They were either racial killings, and then there was a couple of instances where guards had, during a, a, a cell extractions, had tear gas and killed inmates. The tension there was real high. The assassinations on the yards of W.L. Nolan, Alvin Miller, and Cleveland Edwards triggered this whole upheaval in, in the California penal system. The three, who became known as the Soledad Brothers, were brought in chains and shackles to two secret hearings in Salinas County, and so commenced one of the most extensive legal defenses in U.S. history. The Soledad brothers were charged with murder, not because there was any substantial evidence of their guilt, but because they had been identified as black militants by the prison authorities. If convicted, they would face a mandatory death sentence. The Soledad brothers all have his basis and his connection with the Black Panther Party. David Hilliard, Black Panther Party leader. George, who says himself that it was the Black Panther Party more than anything that gave expression to uh, political prisoners as a voice. Notice had to be served on the Department of Corrections that you just cannot wantonly kill black people without some type of response. Here to Malcolm X's philosophy, there's nothing wrong with self-defense. When those brothers got killed on the yard, the courts ruled that it was justifiable homicide. What alternative do you have as a group? The Soledad Brothers case emerged as a focal point for a growing movement demanding changes within California prisons. It was a time when the American status quo was shaken by black rebellion in more than 100 cities, as well as the mass movement against the Vietnam War. These ideas were developed against the backdrop of progressive revolutions uh, transforming the globe. Angela Davis, prison abolitionist and University of California professor. The struggles of the Vietnamese people, for example, 
the fact that increasing numbers of countries in Africa were uh, achieving their independence. Uh, and today people tend to think about uh, the movements of the 60s as movements that were very separate, nationalists, uh, racially defined, because they're looking at them through the lens of what is generally considered to be identity politics today. But as a matter of fact, the, the black power movement per se was not an exclusive movement. There were people of all racial, ethnic backgrounds involved in that movement. There was a connection with global movements. Uh, and there was a connection with uh, the Young Lords, uh, the Brown Berets, uh, the American Indian Movement. Uh, we were part of a global revolution. There was no question about uh, the importance of making those connections and building those bridges. The prison was our battleground, our battlefield. David Johnson. It wasn't in isolation with what was taking place outside because as people start to raise their voices about civil rights violations and human rights violations, then brothers inside through civil litigation, through protests, strikes, and stuff like that fought to gain their civil rights and human rights. On August 7, 1970, just a short time after George Jackson was transferred to San Quentin Prison, the Soledad brothers' case was catapulted to the forefront of national news when George's brother, Jonathan, a 17-year-old high school student in Pasadena, led a raid on the Marin County Courthouse with a satchel full of handguns, an assault rifle, and a shotgun hidden under his coat. Educated as a political revolutionary by his brother, Jonathan invaded the court during a hearing for three San Quentin inmates not including his brother, and handed them weapons. As Jonathan left the courthouse, leading the three prisoners and five hostages, including the judge, he demanded that the Soledad brothers be released. Prison guards and other authorities opened fire on the escape van, killing Jonathan Jackson, William Christmas, James McLean, and the judge. Only one black prisoner, Rochelle McGee, survived what has become known as the Marin County Rebellion. Rochelle McGee. This is one of the reasons I fight so hard and fight back and will continue to do so with the belief that I've always had. As long as you fight, nobody know how the fight gonna come out. It's a possibility I might win, but I know if I stop, I cannot win. I also believe that one man one man can make a difference if he's sincere. Of Jonathan, George wrote, He was free for a while. I guess that's more than most of us can expect. George Jackson, recorded in San Quentin before his murder. I don't think that uh, it's fair to Jonathan Jackson. I don't think it's fair to William Christmas or to uh, James McLean or Brother McGee. I don't think it's fair at all to uh, try to bury those brothers' examples. And, you know, Jonathan sacrificed his, his life for the cause of freeing his brother and, and all of those who were unjustly imprisoned. There wasn't one thing that could stop those brothers from uh, attaining what uh, they started out to do. 
I think it was well thought out. The mistake was in uh, underestimating the viciousness of uh, the prison guards. David Hilliard. Jonathan Jackson uh, made an attempt to free George and, uh, and other political prisoners. Certainly a, a revolutionary action. Jonathan and uh, the judge and William Christmas and James McLean were all killed in that event. And Rochelle McGee, who still lingers in prison, was also um, a part of that attempt to, uh, to free those brothers from prison. Rochelle McGee, prison activist and jailhouse lawyer still in prison for his political resistance. Slavery is something that is being practiced by the system under the color of law. Slavery 400 years ago, slavery today. It's the same, but with a new name. They're making millions and millions of dollars off of enslaving blacks, poor whites, and others daily. People who don't even know that they are being railroaded. George Jackson. The only way the oppressor can maintain his position is by fostering, nurturing, building contempt for the oppressed. The brutality really leads to more resistance, and that's what we're working for revolution. The institutions uh, that buttress the the establishment uh, have to be assaulted. Political incarceration removes threats to the political and economic hegemony of the United States. Even though in 1959, George Jackson initially went to prison as an everyday lawbreaker with a one-year-to-life sentence, it was his political consciousness that kept him incarcerated for 11 years. One of the important achievements of the movement during that period was to do what George Jackson called the transformation of a criminal consciousness into a political consciousness. Angela Davis. I mean, this was precisely what he took on. And no one can deny that um, there were many people then, as now, committing antisocial acts against uh, members of their communities, members of other communities. So that when you leave these institutions and go back to your communities, you can be an asset to your community and not a predator. David Johnson. And a lot of brothers embrace that concept. He did a lot of studying. Luis Bato Talamantes, prison activist and former prisoner. And he was persistent in talking to me and other Chicano brothers who had no real interest nor inclination to even be political, uh, we were still kind of like inclined to be criminal. For the first four years, I read in economics, pure economics. George Jackson. The second four years, I read in exclusively in uh, military things, you know, guerrilla warfare, Mao Zedong. I read Nkrumah stuff. I read uh, Jacques, Nui and Jacques, People's Army, People's War. I went through the whole gambit. The whole thing, the whole line. George Jackson always referring to the uh, Vietnamese uh, people's soldiers, uh, the Viet Cong, as comrades. Bato Talamantes. And George Jackson was the one that would, with a nice smile. George Jackson really kind of had a big smile, and he would kind of like get a twinkle in his eye, and he would kind of lead you down this thing going uh, and show you in very simple, kind of like an educational way so that you didn't 
feel like he was talking over you or putting you down. He would show you step by step how uh, your mind got manipulated into into rooting for the wrong side. See? Many of us were going into prisons during those days, especially from 1969 through the latter 70s, where some 1,800 arrests. Fred Hampton's murdered in Chicago. Mark Clark is murdered. The um, eight or nine other Panthers are taken to, to jails and, and wounded. The whole New York chapter was under attack and everybody was imprisoned. The wave of repression and war against our Black Panther Party chapter in Los Angeles where there was this four-hour gun battle. Uh, the um, police shootout with myself in Cleaver where little Bobby Hutton was killed April 6, 1968. So it was truly a war against our black communities. Just like in the South, the Deacons for Defense had to be formed to protect themselves from not only the police but the attacks of the Klan as black people, you know, were in quest of securing their, their civil rights. So the same thing occurred here in the prison system. It culminated into a militant wing of, of the prison movement. And their task and responsibility was to protect their rights and lives of black prisoners at large. We're just beginning, beginning to learn, beginning to uh, relate to each other, learn how to function together. George Jackson. We are aware of the fact that uh, the opposition uses the kill-off-the-head principle, kill the body, and uh, we've set up safeguards against that sort of thing. Well, I could die tomorrow, but uh, there'll be a two or three hundred people to take my place. David Hilliard. George is certainly a very dangerous man and was um, targeted for silencing because George is beginning to um, remold and to create this new man that goes into prison as a criminal, but now coming out uh, as a, uh, a revolutionary activist. A year and two weeks after the revolutionary takeover in Marin, prison guards at San Quentin ruthlessly murdered George Jackson. Saturday, August 21st, 1971. Today at about 3 p.m. there was an attempted break from our adjustment center, which is our maximum security facility. Apparently a gun was smuggled in and... Uh, was in the possession of George Jackson. Uh, George Jackson was killed as he broke and ran outside the adjustment center. We were allowed out by the fact that the control box had been opened. Bato Talamantes. And uh, we all came out of our cells questioning what was going on. And at that time, we realized that the first floor tier of the adjustment center had, in fact, been seized by some revolutionary prisoners, one of them, George Jackson, that the skeleton crew that had worked on that Saturday, I think, consisted of four officers, had been taken hostage and uh, tied up and laid on the floor. And so it was pretty amazing in that very short period of time, which I call the half-hour revolution, when in fact prisoners did manage to overcome their captors and took over the cell block and for a few minutes tasted freedom. I've been hungry too long, I've gotten angry too often, I've been lied to and insulted too many times. They pushed me over the line. There can be no retreat. 
I leave here alive, I'll leave nothing behind. They never caught me among the broken men. Saturday, his life was cut short when he exited the adjustment center door, bolted past the four post at San Quentin, which is your central control for the guards, and was uh, sighted on and shot and killed by a sharpshooter guard, and he bled to death on the black asphalt. Mr. Jackson, you've lost two sons uh, under violent circumstances. That's what the guard said to me last night. We killed one of your sons last year. We got another one this year. You pretty soon won't have any sons left and laugh. I'm haunted by the face of his mother, because it might be my mother. And I've been haunted by the face of Jonathan because it could have been my brother. James Baldwin, writer and social activist, speaking in Paris in 1971. I want Ronald Reagan to write a letter to me and to George Jackson, telling me exactly what happened in that prison and how he knows. I want Nixon to confirm it, to tell me why we are still in prison and at their mercy. As long as that is so, the entire Western world is doomed. What is your reaction to yesterday's tragedy? I think it's the same thing that goes on in the prisons day in and day out. Georgia Jackson, George and Jonathan's mother, speaking at San Quentin, August 1971. It's not new. It just happened to be my son this time instead of some other black woman's son or some other white woman's son that they want to kill. Do you blame anybody for what happened to your yes, son yesterday? Yes, I blame the prison. I blame the people who run the prison. I blame the governor, the state and the United States government. I blame them all because they have the power to change these things and don't want to. Can't you understand? They don't want to change them. James Baldwin. Beneath the political implications of this bloody event, there's also an anguish which has endured in my country for nearly 400 years. I myself have lived through too many murders and too many assassinations. To believe a word that Nixon or Reagan or any of the other American authorities say. For me, there's been Medgar Edwards, who was murdered in Mississippi, and Malcolm X, who was murdered in New York, and Martin, who was murdered in Memphis. I know very well what it is like to be a black man in America. I know very well that the intention of the American Republic was to keep black people slaves forever. And I know that now that black people have discovered in their own minds, in their own hearts, that they are not what they are told they were, that America's on the verge of panic, on the verge of civil war. They set up his murder just like they do everybody else that speaks out against them. And they'll probably do me the same way because I am going to speak every chance I get. These people have the power to do right. Why don't they do right? Imagine when the American public is going to wake up to the fact that the people who own and run this country don't want to do right. They know they have everybody in this country afraid of them. People don't love this country so much, they're afraid of what their own country will do to them. A young man by the name of George Jackson in San Quentin wrote this letter to his mother three days before he was murdered. Harry Belafonte, performer and human rights activist. It was on the occasion of her birthday. Dear Mama, 
I hope this year's birthday finds you well. I would like to be able to give you things and take you places, but I've been unfortunate and slow learning. But I've learned well. Perhaps next year, I'll be able to give you a villa in Tanzania. On Saturday, August 21st, 1971, Soledad brother George Lester Jackson was shot to death by guards in the prison yard at San Quentin. If they kill me, Mama, he had written home in a letter, I'll just be dead, but I'll never kiss their feet. That Saturday afternoon, Georgia Jackson had rushed to San Quentin to learn of her son's fate. The guard at the gate said, last year we killed one of your sons and today we killed another. If you aren't careful, you'll have no sons left. Georgia Jackson said to the guard, I have sons throughout the world wherever people are fighting for freedom. He was very charismatic. People who had the opportunity to meet him in in prison were really drawn to him because of his passion, because of his uh, dedication and his determination to work through these questions of revolution. I had met George when I was like 17 in the segregation unit at Tracy. Sundiata Tate. And he always struck me as this incredible, beautiful person. Uh, intellectual giant, but he didn't speak with intellectual words. He spoke in a way that the average person had no problems understanding him. I can even recall when he organized a strike and he got everyone to refuse to eat and throw their trays out on the tier. And he got black brothers to do that, Hispanic brothers to do that, and a few white brothers that was there. He got all of them to participate in this. One of the warrens, uh, system warrens or something, was supposed to be making an appearance and to show out his pleasure. All of us collectively, when they brought our food, threw it out on the chair. What was going on, we wasn't down with it, and we protested against those conditions, the food that we was given, the lack of sunshine. I just remember him organizing it. The prison had failed to contain uh, George's enthusiasm and his dedication and his, um, his joy, his happiness. Not very many people had the opportunity to know him as a human being. And uh, 30 years later, it's, he still kind of like inspires me because I can still see him smiling and giving me encouragement even when he himself was facing the death penalty. It is imperative that George's message continue to be heard, both by the righteously angry but unchanneled youth and the more cynical, sometimes weary veterans of the struggle. The message must be carried farther than where George bravely left it in August 1971. Young people should be aware of the legacy of people like George Jackson, without whom we would not be able to do the kind of political work. We wouldn't have the conceptual apparatus that we have now in terms of trying to understand the centrality of the prison in 
relation to the economy and in relation to the social landscape in general? A formation grew out of that, you know, in support of George, in support of Jonathan, and, you know, and it still exists. David Johnson. They're still paying that price. They're languishing in these institutions. Some have died. And if something is not done, it would be criminal for no voices to be raised against the brutality, the isolation, the sensory deprivation that takes place, and the flagrant violation of their human rights. Settle your quarrels. Come together. Understand the reality of our situation. Understand that fascism is already here. That people are dying who could be saved. That generations more will die or live poor, butchered half-lives if you fail to act. Do what must be done. Discover your humanity and your love in revolution. Pass on the torch. Join us. Give up your life for the people. George Jackson. You have been listening to The Struggle Within, The Murder of George Jackson. My name is Jonathan Jackson, Jr. Both George Jackson and my father left me a great deal. An unmistakable name. A pride that comes from a history of uncompromising resistance and a commitment to identify and fight injustice at every turn. Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, an examination of uh, George Jackson, Jonathan Jackson, uh, featuring uh, Angela Davis and other uh, longtime uh, activists and former political prisoners. Also an interview with uh, Rochelle McGee, who still remains incarcerated uh, in uh, the California correctional system uh, for nearly uh, 60 years. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide radio broadcast. For Sunday, uh, August 22nd, 2021, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'll be back. Got me looking thin and frail. I never see the spider. 
so much pardon in his tail. Black water, black water, stop crawling in my door. Well, you sung me one time, but you won't sing me no more. Well, that spider was dang me, I mean he run me down. Somebody dang his pardon. That's what I can around. Black water, black water. Stop calling in my door. Well, you saw me one time, but you won't say me no more. Well, he was same at my house, or either out the crowd. Welcome back, and uh, that was the voice of Memphis Minnie uh, with the tune entitled uh, Black Widow Stinger. And uh, right now we want to move back into our Black August uh, programming. Uh, Black August uh, was formed uh, by political prisoners in the state of California in 1979. It is designed uh, to evoke the revolutionary tradition of uh, those like George Jackson, Jonathan Jackson, and many others throughout history, the Nat Turners, the Harriet Tubmans, and so many others uh, who have struggled uh, for the liberation of African people from enslavement and racism and colonialism, imperialism, neocolonialism, and capitalism. And uh, Mumia Abu-Jamal still remains a political prisoner uh, in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Uh, Mumia Abu-Jamal is a writer, frequent commentator on national as well as world affairs. And uh, we're going to listen uh, to a commentary on Huey P. Newton. Uh, this was done in November of 2017. Let's listen in. Huey, love for the people. Dr. Huey P. Newton, the founder of the Black Panther Party in Oakland, California, began the organization, along with Bobby Seale, as a body focused on the people, on their defense, and also in their service. In most media portrayals of the time, black radicals were always described as black militants, and if they were pictured, one saw a young man or woman with a seemingly permanent scowl on their face. Huey broke through this media mold by beginning early with the party's own media. A newsletter made on a mimeograph machine with a picture of a young black man killed by cops in Richmond, California. I have to ask, does anybody in this audience know what a mimeograph machine even is? If you do, I bet you're over 50. What was the point, though? That the people were important, not the party. For party members were taught from the first days of membership that party members 
were servants of the people. It is in that spirit that we saw party leaders start programs like the Free Breakfast for Children program, the Free Clothing program, Free Shoes programs, and Free Health Clinic programs, and the like. Those programs, based in local churches or party offices, serve to develop close relationships between the people and the party in a way that has rarely been imitated by radical or revolutionary collectives. On November 18, 1970, Huey gave a speech at Boston College. There, he spoke about many of these programs that the party began, telling the audience, in order to exist, we must survive. Therefore, we need a survival kit, the 10-point program. It is necessary for our children to grow up healthy with functional and creative minds. They cannot do this if they do not get the correct nutrition. That is why we have a breakfast program for children. We also have community health programs. We have a busing program. We call it the bus for relatives and parents of prisoners. We realize that the fascist regime that operates the prisons throughout America would like to do their treachery in the dark. But if we get the relatives, parents, and friends to the prisons, they can expose the treachery of the fascists. Dr. Huey P. Newton ended his speech by telling the audience that the people make the revolution. What we see here is that the central governing ethos of the party was a survival and well-being of the people. What people? The most oppressed segment of American society. Black people. Poor people. It is from this community that the party drew its members. It is to this community that the party directed its 10-point program it is for this community that the survival programs were implemented. Whether we use the term the community or the people, we're talking about the same entity. The Black Panther Party went through a number of ideological iterations, from nationalists to internationalists, from Malcolmites to Marxists, from Marxists to intercommunalists. But the party performed another vital service, one rarely given credit for, and that's in the realm of theory. Dr. Huey P. Newton dared to theorize and analyze the world around him and to call that theory intercommunalism. What did he mean by intercommunalism? Dr. Newton argued that the party and all phenomena goes through a period and process of transformation based upon the notion of dialectical materialism and he illustrated this by the initial phase of the party being nationalist to internationalist and beyond. He argued further that the power of the U.S. empire was such that it neutralized and actually negated other nations. Dr. Newton wrote, We found that because everything is in a constant state of transformation, because of the development of the mass media, because of the firepower of the imperialists, and because of the fact that the United States is no longer a nation but an empire, nations could not exist, for they did not have the criteria for nationhood. Their self-determination, economic determination, and cultural determination 
has been transformed by the imperialists and the ruling circle. They were no longer nations. We found that in order to be internationalists, we had to also be nationalists, or at least acknowledge nationhood. Internationalism, if I understand the word, means the interrelationship among a group of nations. But since no nation exists, and since the United States is in fact an empire, it's impossible for us to be internationalists. These transformations and phenomena require us to call ourselves intercommunalists because nations have been transformed into communities of the world. That's the words and ideas of Dr. Huey P. Newton. The value of any theory is not a question about the theorist, but how clearly it tracks and predicts reality. In 1972, Huey wrote The Technology Question, which all but predicted the fall of the Soviet Union. Dr. Newton critiqued the late Soviet policy of peaceful coexistence, which Newton blamed on an incorrect analysis of the very nature of the imperialists. Huey characterized this idea as a blow to the many countries opposing the empire, such as Vietnam. Dr. Newton reasoned that this policy was, in fact, an admission of Soviet weakness, which damaged resistance movements in the so-called Third World. His conclusion is a biting one. He wrote, With the high quality of Soviet development at a time when the United States was less advanced than it is today, the Russians could have built up the necessary force to oppose imperialism. Now, all they can do is whimper like whipped dogs and talk about peaceful coexistence so that they will not be destroyed. This presents the world with the hard fact that the United States is the only state power in the world. Russia has become, like all other nations, no more than a satellite of the United States. American rulers do not care about how much Russians say that they are the Soviets, as long as Ford can build its motor company in their territory. In late 1991, less than 20 years after Huey wrote these words, the Soviet Union essentially abolished itself, and Russia began the long trek to crony capitalism. Dr. Huey P. Newton, known to history as one of the principal founders of the Black Panther Party, but also one hell of a political theorist. Thank you for your time. On the move, from imprisoned nation, this is Mumia Abu-Jamal. These commentaries are recorded by Noel Hanrahan of Prison Radio. Oh.
the voice of uh, Mary Stafford uh, from the early 1920s. Very popular tune uh, indeed. Uh, I'm going to jazz my way by Mary Stafford, known then uh, as one of the most formidable blues singers and artists in the United States. We go back uh, to our focus on Black August, and this is a feature on uh, Huey P. Newton, uh, deals with uh, interviews and other information uh, that was um, broadcast um, just five months after Huey Newton uh, was arrested and charged uh, in the death of an Oakland police officer and uh, the wounding of another. Uh, that occurred in October of 1967. Uh, this uh, rare archival uh, radio broadcast uh, from the Bay Area was done just five months uh, after that time period in March of 1968. Let's listen to this historic broadcast on Huey P. Newton and the Black Panther Party from March of 1968. This is Colin Edwards. At 9 a.m. on Thursday, March 7th, I went down to the Alameda County Courthouse to cover the preliminary to the trial of the young Black Panther leader, Huey P. Newton, who was accused of the murder of one Oakland policeman and the wounding of another, charges which Mr. Newton vehemently denies. For the first time at a court appearance of Mr. Newton or any other Black Panthers or young radicals, I was barred from entering the courthouse for lack of a police pass. Also excluded were a French news photographer and a People's World photographer. So I didn't get to see Mr. Newton in court. However, an hour later I was able, to my surprise, to record Mr. Newton in the detention quarters on the 10th floor as he talked with three American reporters and myself and his lawyer, Mr. Charles Gary. Mr. Gary had earlier brought me up to date on the status of Mr. Newton's case when I was finally admitted to the courthouse after the trial preliminary had ended and after Mr. Gary had held a press conference on the fourth floor. Uh, Mr. Gary, I was, I was kept outside the courthouse until now. Could you very quickly summarize it for KPFA, the situation as of now? The situation as of now, the court has uh, picked a trial judge, Judge Monroe Friedman in, de in Department 8. The case has been set for trial on May the 6th, 1968. Has there been any change in the situation with regard to the charges? Have they dropped any charges? Have they brought up new evidence? Have they shown you any evidence? No, they have not dropped any of the charges. We have a substantial amount of the so-called evidence, uh, but we do not have the list of the witnesses so that we can interview them and be able to prepare for this case. Uh, and normally, the defense is given these things, uh, the names of witnesses, are they? Normally, they're given those uh, names uh, if the defense attorney makes the proper motions, and we have made the proper motions. Before meeting Mr. Newton, and indeed before I even knew I could interview him, I met his sister and his fiancée. Now, because members of Mr. Newton's family have been subjected to unpleasant harassment, I will not identify them by name. Mr. Newton's sister turned out to be a lady of great dignity, the picture of respectability, but added to that a gentle, serene countenance. The uh, poor people, the Negro people, I mean, he's always felt very strong about this and different things that happened, I'm sure is what drove him more to believe that something needed 
to be done about it. Is this a gradual progression to this, uh, to this stage? Gradually, you say? Mm-hmm. Well, yes, I guess, yes, it wasn't a jumped up thing, if that's yes. what you mean. Yes, uh, yes, gradually all, all along, like I say, you know, he um, thinks of the betterment of a man, things that need doing. He believes you should get up and do something about it. He's always been this way, even as a child. He likes sports, he likes music, and he's very interested in history. And I think in reading history and seeing how the world really is, is another thing that encouraged him. Do you feel that Huey stands any chance of having a fair trial? Sometimes I have hope and sometimes listening, I doubt it. I, I can't see how it's possible. I, I don't feel, I hope he has more courage than I have, but feeling the way I feel about it. Uh, I, me personally, it, it don't seem, up to this point it haven't gone fair. This is what I base it on. It haven't gone fair up to this point. So naturally, I don't have much hope for it going fair any further. It must be a very drastic thing to happen to any family. Yes, it is. Yes, my my mother is, is ill, and my father is too. He tries to go on to work, but my mother can never make it to court. She says she comes in, but by the time, you know, I have to take it to what the doctor. What did your father do? He worked for the city of Oakland. Mm-hmm. My mother's housewife. Yes. yes. A quiet family, Negro family, yes. and suddenly this happens. Yeah, to my them. father's a minister, by the way. Is he? Yes. Now, uh, some of the press here have been uh, branding. Uh, Huey and other leaders in the Black Panther Party as anti-white racists. Would you like to say something about Huey's attitude on this question? Uh, of course, she wasn't in court this morning, another lady. Uh, I wasn't allowed in. <laughs> oh, you wasn't allowed in. Anyway, she wasn't there. That's, that is Huey's girlfriend. That. But before he met her, Huey's girlfriend was a white girl. So this proves. Before that girl, she was a Filipino girl. So this proves that he has no qualm. He's not British at all. And my father is half white. So uh, this goes kind of far back, so we have no connection with the white family. But, I mean, this would uh, kind of detour the British to Mr. Newton's fiancée, an extremely attractive young black lady with classic features, is, like Mr. Newton himself, very musically inclined and she has shown great promise as a singer. I asked her, too, about the anti-white label applied to Mr. Newton. As far as being anti-white, this is, um, you know, ridiculous. I think this is just uh, retaliation on the part of the system to, uh, you know, try and knock the Panthers, to try and say that the Panthers are wrong, and to use any sort of devious methods against them. Uh, I, Huey has always expressed that he is anti-oppressor, and uh, I am anti-oppressor. Um, and I think that uh, any person that believes in right would be anti-oppressor. Not, it's not anti-color of any kind. It's just the oppressor. Well, Huey is um, he's a very energetic person, dynamic, and very kind and gentle. Uh, for instance, every time he... He passes me, uh, although we're in the same house or in the same room, he'll say hi. 
how you doing, you know, or he, he you know, he's very considerate towards people. Mm-hmm. Did he, he talk much too about his, um, his future, his plans, his hopes? Well, we both believe that uh, this is just another obstacle and that it will soon be over. And uh, from there, uh, his future too much hasn't been mapped out. But I'm sure we'll be working on it. How do you feel about this trial? Do you think that he stands any chance of getting a fair trial? Um, as it stands now, uh, as far as fairness, I don't think that fairness is being displayed in the many things that have been brought up in the trial. I think that it's a deliberate attempt to railroading. But I believe that because he is right, and I believe that he is innocent, and uh, I believe in him, that I think that things will work out fine. We look forward to them working out. Have you suffered any victimization or harassment of any sort uh, as a result of having been close to Mr. Newton? Well, calls to my job, my home, uh, being followed. Uh, being followed by whom? <laughs> I don't know, just men in cars, you know, and the, uh, just the, the regular intimidation process that they go through. But this, uh, I, because of uh, my belief in Huey and uh, in the philosophy of the Panthers, that I don't, um, I don't let anything like that bother me. Have you suffered any ostracization at all, for instance? You work in an office, do you? Yes, I do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you're a secretary, are you? No, I'm a counselor. Mm-hmm. Have you suffered any sort of reactions from people there as a result of this case or the whole Black Panther movement? Some. Uh, you work with white people, I take it? That. No, I work with uh, primarily black people. Oh. Uh, I work with some white. And oddly enough, um, some of the ostracization came through uh, women black people, you know. Uh, I, should, I shouldn't say black people, I should say, in quote, Negroes, unquote. <laughs> and, uh, but I think that uh, everyone is just sort of resolved to the fact that uh, I'm with you and there's nothing that anyone can do about it. So they've sort of uh, swallowed it. Well, now let's meet Mr. Newton himself. He's a rather handsome young man, a sort of darker-skinned version of Horst Buchholz or Warren Beatty. The photographs on the posters and pamphlets I've seen really do not do him justice. With me interviewing him in the cell were Mrs. Joan Didier, who is a Saturday Evening Post columnist, Mr. Ray Rogers of the Los Angeles Times, and Mr. Eldridge Cleaver, an editor at Ramparts magazine and himself a prominent figure in the Black Panther Party. Mr. Newton's attorney, Mr. Charles Gary, was also present, and he put in a question or remark once or twice. Copyright to this group interview belongs to the Huey P. Newton Defense Fund, without whose specific consent no reproduction or publication of Mr. Newton's remarks can be made. The next voice you'll hear will be that of Mr. Huey P. Newton. We ran into the problem of people misinterpreting uh, us as a political party. Uh, they use the word uh, for self-defense as uh, as uh, they define us then as a group that uh, were a paramilitary group or uh, or uh, bodyguards of something of this nature. But um, 
we found that uh, it was very difficult. Even in our program, we described uh, or defined ourselves as a political party, but yet people uh, seem to misinterpret the, uh, the definition of what self-defense is all about. Uh, we realize that uh, when we're assaulted in the community by the uh, Gestapo tactics of the police, this is also a political thing. Uh, we're assaulted because we're black people and because uh, the power structure uh, finds it uh, uh, to their advantage uh, to uh, keep us imprisoned in our black community and uh, as uh, a colonialized or a, a colonial people are kept by uh, some foreign power. So um, the police uh, is only an arm of the white power structure used very similar as uh, their military force, which it is a military force. It's their uh, local police, and you have the National Guard as the national police, and then you have the regular military as the uh, international police. And um, these police are used to, um, to occupy our community just as a foreign troop occupies territory. They don't live in our community, the police, and uh, don't. and. Um, they have no respect for black people who live in the community, yet uh, they occupy the community. Uh, and they're not occupying the community for the welfare and the benefit of the people who live there. They're occupying it to uh, make sure that the uh, businessmen who are systematically robbing our community are safe. Um, so this was one part of our political stand. And uh, to, make, to make the party uh, for basically for the intellectuals because the grassroots of the community, uh, the people who we're most concerned with because uh, the lower class black who represents about 95% of the black population throughout this nation, uh, they understood very well what we stood for. Uh, but to make it clear to everyone, we changed the name to the Black Panther Party and uh, uh, to make it clear what our political stand was about. Mr. Newton, um, some newspapers and radio stations, television stations, sort of brand the Black Panther leadership, you and Mr. Seal and others, as anti-white, racist, sort of counter-racism. Would you like to clear up this matter? Uh, yes, that, uh, the Black Panther Party is against racism. We're not racist, but uh, we stand uh, to protect the black community and to rid America of racism. Uh, we're we're uh, subject to the tactics of races by the white establishment, and uh, but it's a very uh, common thing for uh, the people who are in control of the mass media to define the victim as a criminal or to define the victim of racism as the racist. Uh, this is just a propaganda device that's used by the power structure so that uh, they will uh, gain support uh, throughout the white community who uh, a small portion of it uh, happen not to be racist. But uh, in order to uh, uh, consolidate their troops, uh, they will uh, claim that we want racism, therefore to turn uh, all white people against us. Have you uh, felt good about some young white people uh, sort of coming out in support of your case and uh, taking a political position on it? Uh, yes, the, the white revolutionaries are the uh, enlightened part of the white community has responded uh, and came to the defense of the black community and uh, have come to the defense of the vanguard group of the black community, which is the Black Panther Party, and that uh, we think we'll see more of this in the future.
talk for a moment about yourself, your life, you know, before the Black Panther Party? I think that uh, before the Black Panther Party, um, that my life was very similar to most black people in the country. I'm from a, uh, a lower class black family, a working uh uh, a working class family and uh, I've uh, suffered the abuses of the power structure just as uh, uh, all black people in America have and uh, I've responded and that uh, black people are responding now so I see very little difference in my uh, personality than any other uh, black person living here in racist America. I mean, what shaped your, atti your, your attitude towards these, towards the institutions that you're, you're indicting? Um, living here in America, it, it reminds me of a, a quote that uh, from James Baldwin. Uh, he says that to uh, to uh, be black and conscious in America is to be in a constant state of rage, and I think this is uh, very true of uh, black people in general in this country. Many black people, uh, uh, most black people, as I said, that are uneducated and uh, they're not used to handling academic things and uh, administrating. Uh, so their response might have been somewhat different than mine, but um, they will rally behind a political party that's uh, representing their grievance. So uh, all the Black Panther Party has done is to uh, articulate and bring out uh, the grievances of the black community. Can you think of some, recall some incidents that sort of brought home to you the attitude of a majority of white people towards Negroes and the attitude of the black, of the white establishment? You like a specific incident? Uh, can, you know, people can bring home to people, you know, how this can scar one's soul. And I think you're trying to boil it down to one statement. I don't think that well, I, I can understand that. It's, it's very difficult for me to cite uh, one specific incident because uh, it's a very long uh, uh, process and that I've started to say that uh, for a white person to understand, let him come to the black community, but this wouldn't be a good example because he couldn't experience the alienation and the, uh, the, uh, the antagonistic uh, attitudes of blacks, blacks that we receive in the white community. And we live in the white world, in the white, uh, white America here, and that uh, uh, any time a white person goes to uh, the black community or a black country, I doubt very seriously whether he experiences this uh, alienation because black people seem to um, have some, uh, some priority on, uh, uh, upon uh, being uh, humanist for some reason. Perhaps it's a uh, historical reason. That I can't uh, pinpoint why, but we seem to be uh, more fair as a people to other people than anyone else in the world. Have you had a chance to see this uh, President's Commission on the Civil Disorders report? Uh, I read a couple of accounts of it, yes. Do you think it's hitting pretty close to the mark? I think that some of the statements in the report uh, uh, hit the mark, but uh, as far as uh, the conclusion or the solution to the problem, I think uh, they were warning in that uh, in that direction. 
You think the uh, white establishment and the white people the, as a whole will take it to heart and do something really effective to solve this problem of racism that it portrayed? Uh, <clears throat> I doubt seriously whether uh, white America is uh, mature enough uh, and mentally well enough to uh, solve this problem without uh, a, uh, a great uh, catastrophe. Are you optimistic about your trial? And do you think it will be a fair trial? Well, I think that black people uh, will make very sure that I receive a fair trial. I have no faith at all in the, uh, in the court system because uh, I've already suffered an injustice uh, uh, by being indicted by an all-white middle-class uh, grand jury. And uh, so from my prior uh, experiences uh, that I would expect for them to, uh, I would expect no change. But uh, I also expect black people to come to my aid and put pressure uh, and see by any means necessary that uh, all black men receive a fair trial. That's including those who are held in the various prisons and county jails at the present time. We're demanding an immediate release for them because we realize that they've suffered uh, the same kind of uh, injustice that I'm suffering now. You know, the Peace and Freedom Party uh, sought to have you run as their candidate in the 7th Congressional District. And we understand that you stated that if the Peace and Freedom Party would endorse the 10-point program of the Black Panther Party, then you would feel uh, free to run. Uh, would you like to comment on that? Uh, that's very true, that uh, the Black Panther Party feels that the essentials that we cited in our platform, the 10-point program, is necessary for any group to accept if we're going to work in coalition with them. Uh, it's, a, uh, it's the basic things that the black community, uh, the, it's the basic demands of the black community. And without accepting the basic demands, uh, we would feel that uh, the person who is seeking coalition is insincere if he cannot accept these uh, uh, ten, uh, ten basic um, uh, philosophies. Points in the ten-point program um, is the uh, elimination of all black people from the draft, right? Uh, yes, that's part of it. Uh, we have a ten-point program of uh, what we want and what we believe, yeah. and that uh, we state that um, that uh, black people should not be made to fight in a war and uh, to fight, serve in a military and to serve a government that is not uh, working in our benefit and that's not working for our general welfare. That uh, if the government is working against black people and for the destruction of black people, we don't see any need at all for black people to serve in that military uh, that's oppressing us and other colored people throughout the world. So we uh, demand that all black men be released from the military service and not serve at all until this government uh, rightens the wrongs uh, that's been, that have been uh, perpetrated against us. Well, it's not, it's not an objection to uh, this specific war, it's an objection to, to our government, right? Uh, it's, a, it's an objection to the, uh, the specific war in particular and the government in general. We don't see where we would fight anyone uh, for this uh, racist government that's only uh, oppressing people for uh, economical reasons and race reasons as they're oppressing us in our black colonies throughout America. How did 
place that uh, the Black Panther Party is a political party. Uh, I don't believe that uh, that Ron Coringa claims to be a, a political organ. Uh, secondly, that uh, uh, Ron Coringa and other uh, uh, some other nationalist groups uh, seem to be somewhat hung up on the uh, surviving Africanisms or uh, what we call cultural nationalism. And uh, cultural nationalism deals with uh, a return to uh, the old culture of Africa, and uh, that we will somehow become free by uh, identifying and returning to this uh, culture of Africa, say, uh, that was in the 1100s or before then. And uh, uh, somehow uh, they believe that uh, they will be free through identifying this manner. As far as we're concerned, we believe that uh, it's important for us to recognize our origin and to identify with the revolutionary black people of Africa and uh, uh, people of color throughout the world. But as far as returning uh, per se to the ancient customs, uh, we don't see any necess necessity in this. And also, we say that the only culture that's worth really holding on to is revolutionary culture or change uh, for the better and that uh, we say the only way we're going to be free is by seizing power, political power, which uh, comes through the barrel of a gun. And uh, we say that um, we will identify so that uh, we will have this consolidation of people so we have strength and that uh, we will uh, uh, respect ourselves and uh, have the dignity of our past but uh, many things uh, connected to the culture that uh, we don't feel it's necessary to return to. The Black Panther title and symbol was uh, introduced, I believe, by SNCC in Mississippi and Alabama when they started the Black Panther Party or movement down there. Was this what gave inspiration to the creation of the Black Panther Party here? Uh, yes, I, I was very impressed uh, by the uh, political party in Lowndes County uh, that calls itself a freedom organization, and they use the Black Panther as their symbol. And uh, they use the Black Panther uh, because of the, uh, the nature of a panther, that a uh, panther uh, will not attack anyone, that uh, he will back up first. But uh, if the uh, assailant is persistent, then the Black Panther will strike out and wipe out his aggressor thoroughly, wholly, absolutely, and completely. So we thought that uh, the symbol uh, would be uh, very appropriate for us, and also that uh, we uh, were very—I was very proud of the uh, move that uh, black people in Lowndes County made. Have you had any expressions of sympathy or support from overseas yet? That uh, at this time, that black people all over the world are supporting each other. That uh, we realize that uh, we are being treated by the race of America within the country as other, as other uh, colonized people are treated abroad because for economical reasons, just as we are uh, uh, abused and also for race reasons. I would like to say that uh, communications are kind of bad uh, up here between Huey and the outside world. Uh, for instance, they impose restrictions 
on uh, newspapers and magazines that he could receive books and so forth that uh, would keep him informed on what's going on around the world. Very essential information. Uh, it, were he able to get uh, news from the outside, he would know that while Stokely Carmichael was in Africa, uh, there was a Free Huey rally held in Tanzania, and that uh, President Kwame Nkrumah and Sekou Toure have issued uh, public statements uh, to the effect that uh, Huey Newton should be set free. So there is an awareness, uh, news clippings and so forth are, are sent around the world, and people around the world are aware of this case, they're aware of the pivotal nature of the case, and uh, I'm sure this will become public knowledge when people start checking it out. If you are acquitted and set free, uh, I presume you'll continue into a political clear. Have you thought of returning to law, or are you now bound definitely onto a political career to change those laws by in the Congress or in the state government? Uh, as far as a career, I have one desire, and that, that's to go on fighting for the liberation of black people uh, throughout the world, in particular, the black people here in America. Uh, I, w I would like to uh, relate to uh, the Black Panther Party and uh, our political stand that black people must arm themselves. I think that this has been uh, misinterpreted a number of ways uh, uh, many times. That uh, We've made the statement or quoted it from uh, Chairman Mao that political power comes through the barrel, grows through the barrel of a gun. And uh, the Black Panther Party has analyzed the statement and has uh, come up with the uh, clear realization that uh, any time a people are unarmed and the people and the administrators of that country maintain a regular police force and a regular military, those people, the people of the country are either slaves or subject to slavery at any given moment, that that administration desi uh, desires uh, to inflict the force of their military or police upon the people. So we say that as long as the military and the police force are armed, then uh, black people uh, are, are, uh, <clears throat> uh, should arm themselves. And the many people who have spoken of uh, violence, well, uh, we're advocating violence. We're not advocating violence, but we are advocating that we defend ourselves from the aggression. And that uh, if uh, America is armed, then if it's right for America to uh, arm herself and even commit violence uh, uh, throughout the world, then it's right for black people to arm themselves. And then if it's wrong for America to, uh, to, uh, to um, commit this violence, and, uh, or if it's wrong for black people to commit this violence uh, in their own self-defense, then it's wrong for America to uh, commit this violence against people uh, in America and throughout the world. So uh, it's a... Uh, Statement. It reminds me of a statement that uh, Ronald Reagan made uh, shortly after our appearance at uh, the Capitol. That uh, uh, he said something to the effect, or paraphrase, that that uh, in this enlightened time, that uh, people uh, cannot and should not uh, influence other people by the use of physical force and the gun. Uh, but at the same time, that. Uh, we see throughout America the police uh, being heavily armed and now not only being armed but escalating the war against black people and our black communities by ordering heavy uh, military equipment. 
and uh, we think that uh, Reagan should take a look of it, look at uh, what he's doing and what this American government is doing before he criticized black people for arming themselves to defend themselves against the aggression of America. But do you see yourself as playing a part, say, things uh, assume an orderly process now towards reforms, uh, playing a part in the political scene through the present political structures? I think that the present uh, political structure is bankrupt, and this is what the uh, the game is all about. That the the present uh, political structure has perpetuated and uh, protected racism and inflicted uh, racism. Uh, so we say that uh, there has to be a drastic change in the political structure. As far as uh, my running for office that I would only serve one purpose there as a spokesman uh, to articulate the uh, grievances of the black community. And as far as uh, uh, playing the game that uh, some black po politicians have uh, uh, traditionally played, that uh, the day has come for this kind of action to uh, be over. For instance, this is one of the reasons that we feel it's necessary to arm ourselves in a political fashion. It's, uh, it's a very important thing. For instance, uh, when any um, uh, candidate is going up for political office that uh, he always in the white power structure he always has political power behind him and political power is uh, you can find it in a number of areas you have uh, uh, feudal power or the farmers who own uh, much land and uh, of course they will put a candidate up who uh, will um, serve their welfare and speak in their behalf and uh, the other uh, uh, his uh, political colleagues, uh, the people he has to work with, uh, understand that he has his power behind him. For instance, uh, if the farmers don't get what they want, then uh, they'll let the crops right in the field if they don't get the price, uh, what they want for the crops. And then you have uh, big uh, business power or economical power where the people who own big businesses will uh, get behind a candidate. And uh, this candidate uh, will simply uh, uh, relay the message of these uh, people who are in big uh, big business and uh, it goes on you have the the cattle owners and so forth and uh, we see that black people uh, are black people don't have uh, this political power they don't have economical power they don't have land power we've been robbed uh, for instance uh, our black uh, politicians have been ineffective not uh, much of the time it's not their fault it's simply because they don't have the grassroots political organization behind them um, even if they get votes from black people simply to have a vote doesn't mean political power uh, in the political arena uh, a thing is not political unless there's a, uh, a political consequence if the people don't get what they want and uh, black people in the past haven't been able to offer this consequence for instance uh, uh, according to um, uh, John Hope Franklin, the reason that black reconstruction failed, where you had many black candidates holding offices in the South, wasn't because these black candidates were ignorant or uh, inefficient. Uh, many, of, many of the black candidates had been uh, educated in France and Canada, uh, in England, and uh, they were very efficient. But uh, the reason that it failed is because uh, there was, uh, blacks did not have economical or military power that uh, after they put their man into office that uh, he was still subject to these people who own the land, that he was still subject to these people who own the military. 
Uh, so black reconstruction failed. And uh, we say now we can develop a political consequence, we can develop political power by being a potentially destructive force that uh, black people arm themselves in a political fashion, and then if uh, the aggression is continued against us, we'll be able to offer a political consequence, very similar to uh, Detroit. Uh, it's, it's quite a phenomenon going on in the black community these days. Uh, it's quite clear that while you were out, there were a lot of groups and people who opposed uh, your program and refused to uh, approve of the Black Panther Party, but since you've been in jail, a lot of people who opposed you have turned over and are now members of your party. Uh, also, it's becoming necessary for people to take a public stand on this issue because the black community is demanding that. Uh, one thing, they demanded that uh, Willie Brown, in particular, and all other uh, black elected and appointed officials uh, take a, a public stand. They asked the ones who are members of the legislature to stand up on the floor of the legislature and speak out in your defense. They're demanding that. And it's having a, a political effect because this is an election year. For instance, uh, John Miller and Byron Rumford are trying to run for the same office in Oakland, the 17th uh, Assembly District. Uh, Willie Brown is running again, and John George is seeking to be elected to Congress. And all these people have before them the whole question of where they stand on Huey Newton, and not a meeting goes down without that coming up, and I thought you might be interested in knowing that. Yes. Would, would you expect that to happen? Uh, well, no. Then I, I'm very surprised that uh, it did happen, but after it happened, then in retrospect, uh, I understand uh, what's going on. For instance, the black community is now forcing uh, these uh, political candidates uh, into uh, a direction that they want. Uh, they realize they depend upon black people to vote for them, and uh, black people identify with the Black Panther Party, and uh, they identify with the party more so now than they did in the past, even though we've had great, uh, a great reception from the black community in the past. And the reason for this, in my opinion, is that black people uh, are always impressed by a reality that you could talk all day and articulate all sort of beautiful things, you know, how things could be and how things are, and describe it to the point, and uh, you won't get the response uh, that you would um, that uh, when a reality is put before them. Uh, black people have understood what I've talked about. And uh, now that uh, I'm being subject to these very things that I've criticized, they can sympathize uh, with the party on this. And also, it, uh, it makes them look around and observe. It brings to their consciousness uh, many things that are happening in the black community that are wrong, many things that people have spoke about, and uh, many things that people have uh, uh, suggested uh, change. And uh, they haven't responded to the, to the magnitude that they're responding now simply because it's reality. You cannot deny a reality. And uh, anything that I've said in the past, um, if it didn't relate to the uh, situation, then it was my fault and it wasn't the situation's fault. So black people now are only relating to the reality of their existence. They, they realize that it's not only Huey Newton who's being persecuted, but it's the black community throughout America. And uh, they are responding in their own defense. Well, 
There's been a lot of talk about the generational gap uh, in white families between the young people who are disillusioned with their parents and alienated from them. Is, is there a certain amount of this uh, among black families, and is this part of the problem you have in bringing more adult black people into the movement? Um, I think that uh, the older black people have realized uh, for a very long time the problems, but uh, as for a solution, they've been wanting a solution because the, uh, in the past the uh, black uh, political representatives have been uh, somewhat misleading the black community. In other words, that uh, it's been thought in the past that if you can put a, a, a representative into office, you will automatically get justice. But now it's being realized to have a black man in office doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get uh, uh, political justice. Was the reason you dropped your studies of law that you got disgusted with the system of law here? Um, of course, I'm disgusted with the uh, the uh, judicial uh, uh, system, but uh, more than that, that uh, I can only do so much, uh, I can only be uh, so many places at a certain time, and I felt it more important to work to organize within the community than to uh, continue uh, law school. Are you allowed to have any uh, contact with other prisoners at, in this courthouse here? Uh, no, I, I'm kept in uh, what's called the uh, H-tank, and uh, it's used uh, as a hospital tank when someone is hurt, but uh, I've recovered very well, and I've noticed that I haven't been moved away from the, uh, the hospital cell, and I don't think uh, the deputies here have any intentions of moving me because they don't want me to, uh, it's been rumored that they don't want me to uh, mix with the other prisoners. Uh, many... Uh, Although I've converted many black uh, people, I shouldn't say converted because black people are panthers anyway by the definition of the word, but uh, many people who join the party who've come through here simply by screaming back to my uh, cell and uh, I will uh, define the party and give them some understanding of the political direction of the party. Uh, I haven't been abused here uh, primarily for the reason that uh, the um, department uh, has been uh, admonished by the uh, black people uh, to uh, keep their hands off. For instance, when I first came here, uh, this is a rumor again uh, from a reliable source that uh, the, de uh, the captain uh, notified the uh, deputies not to, uh, uh, not to treat me any differently than other prisoners. So I haven't uh, suffered any brutality here. Um, the attitude of the uh, deputies have been somewhat hostile, and uh, just yesterday, for instance, that I got into a um, uh, an, uh, somewhat of an argument with one of the deputies uh, for a very petty reason, and uh, the reason was this, that uh, the deputies here demand that when any prisoner addresses him, he, he should address him as sir or mister. And, uh, of course, uh, they address the prisoners as uh, by the prisoner's first or last name. Uh, I was asking uh, one of the deputies uh, something yesterday, um, and uh, he kept walking. Then he abruptly turned around and came back, and he said, whenever you uh, address me, you call me Mr. or you call me Sir. And uh, I told him very fine that I would do that. 
but in return I would uh, demand uh, equal respect and that he would, uh, he would uh, speak to me as sir or as mister. And uh, he got very upset and he stormed out and uh, approached the lieutenant and uh, told the lieutenant his problem that uh, a prisoner wouldn't call him sir and uh, gave some indication that uh, he wanted to put me in the punishment cell where the, um, I was, incidentally, I was asking him uh, if I could shave um, <clears throat> because we don't have facilities within, within our tank to shave. We have to be taken to the barber shop. So uh, the lieutenant uh, then told him, and then this is a, a hearsay that, uh, well, don't uh, take him until he says, sir. And uh, fortunately, another deputy came around and gave me a shave uh, because if he hadn't, it, I would have, I would, I would be forced to grow a beard down to my knees before I would uh, say, sir, if I wasn't given equal respect. This is uh, only to relate an attitude, but as far as uh, uh, physical uh, brutality, I haven't received that. Well, that's why you're here. What can you do? Um, well, occasionally uh, I get the paper about a day late, or uh, I have a few books that I've been reading. It's pretty difficult to get reading materials in, um, but I have received a, a few books. So I spend most of my time reading and doing some writing. I wonder if you'd comment on something that struck me. Uh, lots of young uh, white people, young white people, especially from the middle class, have dropped out from the middle class way of life, but also from a lot of them from the activist role. Uh, in, uh, this hasn't happened among young black people. They sort of, more or less as a whole, uh, in general, uh, shunned the sort of the drift into uh, the dropouts, the marijuana, and everything like this. Can you account for this? Uh, yes, that uh, among the dropouts, I, uh, I uh, infer that you're speaking of the hippies yes. saying, uh, hate Ashbury, and that uh, if, you, if you analyze the, the hippies or the hippie movement, you'll find that most of them uh, were uh, middle class uh, or members of a middle class family, uh, the upper lower middle class. And uh, these families have had uh, about every material thing that they could desire. And uh, also, uh, this class have had the, uh, the uh, opportunity to become uh, uh, well-educated. And uh, through this, they realize uh, how bankrupt the, uh, the American system is, the government system, and that uh, as far as... Uh, as far as them participating in it, uh, they've chosen not to participate after their enlightenment, you see, after their education and after they've analyzed the system. So uh, because they are in a state of dismay about change, because of the tremendous technology of this country sort of broke their spirit and they dropped out because uh, the country uh, has a great military and economical power and they've, uh, they've concluded that uh, they can make uh, very little change, so they've dropped out. Uh, black people, in general, are, are not middle class, that uh, we're ex socially and economically of the lower class, um, and that uh, we haven't uh, received the basic things that we want because of the system, uh, because of a tremendous uh, uh, 
uh, spirit because of a great revolutionary fervor that we've had, that we've kept ever since we were brought here to this country uh, from Africa. Uh, we have not been broken, and we're still striving, and we uh, say that uh, our spirit is greater than the technology, de technological developments, and that we, we can and will make changes. So uh, we uh, don't have time for anyone who's dropped out of the, uh, the struggle for freedom. There are a lot of people interested in uh, the executive mandate number three that you've issued uh, to the Black Panther Party. Uh, would you care to comment on that? Uh, this was the, the mandate that... Uh, would you care to comment on that? Uh, yes, the, the, the uh, mandate number three are, is this uh, demand uh, from the Black Panther Party speaking for the black community. And uh, we... Uh, have uh, within the mandate we admonish the uh, the racist police force that uh, if they continue to uh, break down our doors and be aggressive towards and inflict brutality upon us, that uh, we will be forced to protect our home front. That uh, the part party members have experienced uh, Bobby Seale, uh, the chairman in particular, have experienced the police breaking down the door and uh, coming into his house without a warrant and acting in a criminal fashion. And uh, we maintain the right to protect ourselves from criminals. That when the police come in uh, to our house acting as a criminal, uh, he should be brought to justice uh, by the occupants of that house. And uh, because we, uh, in the mandate, we relate the, the, uh, the uh, Valentine's Day uh, massacre that uh, gangsters dressed up in uh, police uh, uniforms under the leadership of uh, Al Capone, and that uh, because uh, they were dressed up in police uniforms, they were admitted into uh, the house uh, of these individuals who uh, turned out to be their victims. And uh, so, in other words, just because a man has on a police uniform uh, doesn't uh, make him a representative of justice and representative uh, representatives of a peacemaker or a peace officer. That um, he could be a, a wolf dressed, dressed in sheep clothing, and that uh, we realize this, and we would like the police to know that at any time they break down our door. Uh, uh, and justly, uh, without a warrant and without any uh, provocation whatsoever, that we're going to defend ourselves against them. I think that covers it. Uh, one any. last question. I didn't know, but are you and uh, other Black Panthers working uh, out a concept of what you'd like this country to be like, with some specifics of what will replace this system one day? Um, yes, that uh, the Black Panther Party. Uh, you'll note, has demanded uh, full employment. Uh, we've demanded uh, uh, decent housing. Uh, we've demanded uh, good education and uh, justice. And uh, we feel that this, uh, the, the system as it is, is uh, cannot give this to us. And we say that any time a man is born, the system, uh, the American capitalistic, uh, imperialistic system has never been able to employ all of, all of its people and that uh, uh, particularly because of the, uh, the greed of the private owner uh, and the so-called free enterprise. We uh, know that uh, when the American uh, white people speak of free enterprise uh, that goes along with the idea of capitalism, that uh, they uh, assume that everyone 
has had the freedom of competition uh, to compete with the next fellow, and uh, it turns out the man who works hardest uh, will have the uh, will benefit will reap more. This doesn't hold true for black people, that when the move to the West where uh, this free enterprise was working uh, fairly well for white people, they were staking up land and the one that would, uh, uh, as we are now, we've, we've never been given a chance to participate in the so-called free enterprise. We built uh, this country because uh, the industrial system was built upon slave labor in the South, and that uh, we made it possible for this country to industrialize, and that uh, we say because we've never benefited by free enterprise and private ownership, then uh, we uh, could not uh, stand for this. This is, this is not a, uh, a good goal for us. So we say that whenever a man is born on a soil, he has a right to live. Uh, and to live, that he's going to have to work. And uh, if, if he can't work because of some physical reason, then it's up to the administrators of that country uh, to support the individual because of his right to live. Now, if the, if the administration says that, uh, well, we just can't possibly employ our people, then we say that system has to be changed, and we say that we put in new administrators who are really interested in the welfare of the people of the country. And uh, as far as the means of production, we say that if the, if the way the means of production are being handled now, if it's not working, then it has to change. If private owners can't give full employment, then we say that then the means of production be taken away from them, put in the people's hands. We'll have managers or administrators to run our production system for the welfare of uh, the people in general of the country. So we say that uh, this is the richest country in the world and that we're sure that the country can give it full employment if it wanted to. If, if uh, you didn't have the greed of profit and racism in the country, tomorrow you could have full, uh, uh, full employment. Mr. Carmichael recently said that um, socialism does not suit the black people, communism doesn't suit the black people, but he omitted to say that capitalism doesn't suit the black people. Do you think uh, that is significant, or uh, from what you've said, I take it you don't think capitalism has served the interests of the black people? Uh, uh, Prime Minister of the Black Panther Party, Stokely Carmichael, uh, said that uh, communism hadn't answered the problem of uh, black people because it didn't relate to racism. Uh, uh, he, he said that, uh, I remember him saying that uh, capitalism didn't answer the, the question either. Uh, perhaps I'm wrong on that, but as I read it, that uh, he said that capitalism did not answer uh, the need of black people. Now, I believe, uh, he, I believe he said that it was irrelevant at this particular time. Uh, I don't think he was making a projected analysis of the subject. Matter. I bring this up because it's confused well, some no, people, and what, I think clarification is good. What I want to point out is this. If you just uh, if you uh, say that if you had a communist structure here in America, a communist structure without relating to racism, uh, communism relates to an economical system uh, that uh, the means of production will be in hands of the people, and the people will put administrators up to run their uh, production machinery, and there will be no profit. There will only be wages that will go back into the community and uh, and uh, for the general welfare of the people. Now, if you just treat it uh, per se as communist in this country, I would say that it wouldn't work. I would say until you get rid of racism, racism is a psychological thing uh, that, that stems all the way back to England uh, and uh, Europe uh, in general, that uh, when, uh, the, when the European met the African, and that uh, 
uh, I have some my own opinions about what happened uh, during that time or some conclusions that I've drawn about it. Uh, for instance, that uh, I think it goes so deeply uh, psychologically as uh, the, the difference and uh, the culture of the European, the difference in the culture of the African, and particularly in how the European uh, worship. For instance, the European had this uh, this one God that he said defined as all good, and he was uh, <clears throat> he was created in the image of this God, and of course God can do no wrong, and that uh, <clears throat> that uh, since he was God-like, he could do no wrong, and uh, as far as sexual drives and so forth, this had no place in God's mind, so therefore it shouldn't have any place in the European mind, and uh, because the European... Welcome back, and uh, that was... Um an extensive uh, interview and discussion uh, with uh, Huey P. Newton on March 7th of 1968, um, even before uh, he had uh, gone to trial uh, for uh, the killing of an Oakland police officer and the wounding of another, uh, which happened uh, later that year. And, of course, um, today uh, represents the 32nd anniversary of the death of uh, U.A.P. Newton, uh, who was killed uh, in Oakland, California, on August 22nd of 1989. And um, that is going to conclude our program uh, for uh, today. And, uh, of course, uh, we've been focusing uh, on Black August, uh, the commemoration developed uh, in 1979, uh, to honor the struggle against racism, capitalism, imperialism, neocolonialism, and all forms of injustice uh, here in the United States and indeed uh, worldwide. And uh, if you'd like to have access to this program, all you need to do is go uh, to the Pan-African Radio Network at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com dot com forward slash pan african journal and uh of course uh, if you want to read the pan african newswire all you have to do is uh go uh to pan african news dot blogspot dot com this is abayomi azikawe uh, we'll be closing out with grant green's idle moments from 1964 have a beautiful week
With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial, LLC, member SIPC.